Well, thank you again for being here this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 1. We're going to be in John chapter 1 talking about the wonders of Christmas. And so this will be a two-part sermon. We'll start this week and then we'll wrap up. Of course, next week is the day after Christmas, so we'll wrap up this Christmas message uh, then. And I do want to uh, let you know next Sunday, I already told you the schedule, uh, but during the worship service next Sunday, we will be partaking in the Lord's Supper. So uh, be aware of that and come prepared in your heart. Uh, we will be participating in the Lord's Supper together uh, next Sunday during our worship service. So John chapter 1, I want to read uh, verses 1 and 2 and then verse 14. So verses 1 and 2 and then verse 14. Uh, and then I'll pray and ask the Lord to bless his word as we receive it today. So John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that we've been able to give to your mission. We pray now that you would speak to our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit and your word working together to transform us. Would you do that in our hearts? In your name we pray. Amen. You know, I think there's a universal truth in our lives that the more familiar we become with something, the less amazed over time we are with that particular thing. So I remember uh, when I got my first cell phone in high school. Uh, some of you probably remember that. You may not have been in high school, though. <laughs> but uh, I remember when I got my first cell phone, and let me tell you something. I was amazed, right? I mean, it was so cool. I remember even before that when my dad had one of those uh, phones in the bags in the car, you know what I mean, and uh, the, with the cord on it. Man, that was so cool, right? And, and, and you just think, this is amazing. Like, we can call people from just this piece of plastic. Now, my phone was more like a brick, uh, it was one of those Nokia, you remember those? They were like the brick with the buttons and the screen was like super tiny. And the only game on the phone was Snake. Anybody remember that? Yeah, Snake, yes. And it had an antenna. Man, I thought I was so cool when I pulled that antenna out to talk to people, you know? Uh, like Zach Morris on Saved by the Bell. So it was, it was really neat and it was just amazing that this piece of plastic, right, could communicate with other people's pieces of plastic. It's amazing, right? It's just totally cool and just unbelievable almost. But now, I mean, now I've got my cell phone over there on the, on the chair. It's like, I don't even think twice about it. You know, like we're just so accustomed to it. It's just so normal. And I mean, Apple tries to hype us up every time a new iPhone comes out, but they all are just the same really. And, uh, but it's just like, you know, it's not as, as wondering and amazing as it was when I first got that first cell phone. But even something, you know, that's something man-made. But if you even think about the things of creation, I think we've become so used to beautiful things in creation that they kind of lose their sense of wonder to us. Just the ocean, right? I mean, hey, us good Floridians, we see the ocean all the time, right? And 
just ask yourself though, do I really stand amazed? Do you ever really take the time to just stand on the shore and just look out and think, this is almost unbelievable, right? Look at all this water that God created and then all of the creatures that live in that water that God created, right? That we're still discovering and, and figuring out and learning about and the fact that he controls the tides and the moon and all that. I mean, it's just amazing. But how often do we not think about the amazement of these things? And what does it take? Like, what does it take to think more deeply and appreciate the wonders of creation or the wonders even of man-made invention? Well, to really appreciate something, you have to dwell on it, right? You have to think about it. You have to really think about what makes these things unique. You have to take the time to notice their intricacies, the complexities of a cell phone, the vastness of an ocean and the diversity of marine life. You have to really think about these things. You have to study them almost to really grow in gratitude and appreciation and wonder and amazement. Well, I think Christmas is in the same boat as these other items around us. I think that we are so familiar with baby Jesus being born in a manger. That's so familiar with anyone who identifies as a Christian that I'm afraid that we do lose our sense of wonder. We lose our amazement at the fact that Jesus being born as a human, that he came to earth, like does that really amaze you? Does it leave us with a true sense of wonder and astonishment or is it just another familiarity of life that happens during a special week, once a year, out of a religious tradition? My hope for us this week and next week is that we would take a closer look, that we would look in depth at the reality that Jesus came to earth and was born as a human that by looking at the details of this most amazing event in human history, that our sense of wonder and amazement of the Christmas story and Jesus himself would be rekindled. So that's what we're going to talk about, the wonders of Christmas. So we're going to look at this from a little bit uh, non-traditional perspective. Now, what we would normally consider the traditional Christmas story is found in the narratives, the historical accounts of Matthew uh, and Luke, all right? That's the story of Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. But in John's account of Jesus' life, he tells it very differently. In fact, he summarizes the whole point of Christmas in really just two simple phrases put together. And that's John chapter 1, verse 14, the first uh, part of the verse there. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So from those two simple phrases combined, I want us to see three wonders of Christmas. So we're going to cover two today uh, and then one next week. But the first one is this. The first thing we see out of this verse, the first amazement, the first wonder is that God desires to be known. God desires to be 
known. Now, my kids are getting into Star Wars because I'm forcing them to. And um, <laughs> my wife doesn't like to watch Star Wars with me, so I've got to have somebody, right? The kids are like, come on, kids, y'all like this, right? And let me just say that buying a four-year-old boy a lightsaber is, was probably a mistake, okay? I've got the bruises to prove it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we love Star Wars at our house, okay? And what, what is the overarch, overarching philosophy on Star Wars? It's the Force, right? So you have the Force, and so, you know, the Jedi mind tricks, they just wave their hands and make you do things, you know, subconsciously. And it's very interesting, right? The Force, it's like this power that exists and kind of holds everything together. And there's a good side, there's a bad side, right? There's a, the light and the dark. And, and so it's similar to this, this idea of the force in Star Wars is similar to a Greek concept called logos. All right. So there's a Greek concept called philosophical idea called logos. And that logos, the Greek said was very similar to this force in Star Wars. It's an impersonal divine principle ordering the universe, right? Kind of regulating the universe, keeping balance in the universe, if you will. And you're like, okay, Pastor Andrew, what, why is this relevant at all to John chapter one? Well, because when you read the word, the word, right? The capital W word in John 1.14 and in John 1.1, right? When you read that, the Greek word that John is using here is guess what? Logos. Now, I want to be clear. John is not talking about an impersonal force. He's not using that word in the same definition way that the Greeks would use it, right? Though I think he is using the word very intentionally to get their attention because he is talking about a logos much superior than the ones the Greeks believed in. John chapter one, verses one through three, listen to this. He says, in the beginning was the logos, the capital W word. So that, that word can mean to, right, to communicate. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So the Greeks think that there's this mystical, impersonal, logos kind of keeping things together in the universe is John's like, no, huh, no, 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 no. There's, there is something keeping everything together in the universe, but it's not impersonal. It's not mystical. And then as you read on, John reveals exactly who the word is. The logos of God, the word of God is who? It's Jesus. It's Jesus himself. So this tells us two things about Jesus. One, it tells us that Jesus is God. And it tells us that Jesus is the ultimate communication of God the Father to us. So by John giving Jesus the title of the word, he is telling us something very amazing here. John is saying that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, is the Logos, the communication of God. He is the word of God. 
So when this happens in Luke 2, verse 7, look at this verse, familiar, right? And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. When that happens in Luke 2, 7, that is what John is describing in a different way in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the Logos, the communication, the supreme revelation of who God actually is, Jesus, God himself, became a human. That's what John's saying. So Luke is giving us the historical detail. John is giving us the big picture theological detail, right? And then John goes on to say what? At the end of verse 14, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. John is declaring without question, without doubt to the Greek society who were polytheistic and believed in many different types of gods, right? He says, no, 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 the logos is not real. You're believing in this mystical uh, thing in your imagination. God has revealed himself. God is real and we know he's real because he came to us, right? He's saying that Jesus shows us what God the Father is like. So, you know, we, we can look at the sun. We can look at the moon. The moon was beautiful last night. We, we can look at the stars and we can stand at the edge of the Atlantic Ocean in Jacksonville Beach, we can stand there and we can look out and we can think, you know, there must be some kind of higher power. There must be some kind of higher being that exists, right? Anybody could look out and think that. But hear me out. Without Jesus, without the communication, the logos, the word of God, Christ himself, without Christ, we cannot fully know who God is. We cannot have a relationship with God the Father. Jesus himself is the ultimate display, the ultimate communication, God himself in the flesh of who God is. And so what does that say to his creation? What does that say to us created by God? What does that communicate to us? It tells us, you know what? God wants to know you. I mean, think about that. God wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He's not some cold, distant God who's disinterested in the affairs of our lives. You know, deism was very popular years ago. And Deism basically is the idea that, oh yeah, there's a God, but he kind of created the world and kind of set it. All right. It's not part of the sermon. Cool. So anyways, let's stand and sing. I'm just kidding. It's like at the Academy Awards when they start playing the music, they're like, all right, let's wrap it up. Let's go.
It's lunchtime. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So anyways, back on track. This is why I have notes. Um, <laughs> there was this idea called deism and it was the idea that, oh yeah, sure. There's a God, but he's, he just kind of created the world and, and he just kind of set it in motion. And then he backed away and he said, all right, good luck. I'm not going to interfere. Right. And see, I think a lot of people, we think that's kind of how God is. You know, I think we would agree with the truth intellectually, philosophically, I think we agree as Christians, of course, that God wants to be known, that he knows us. But functionally, functionally, I'm not sure that we always really believe that, that we always really live that way. In our daily thinking habits, we may functionally think and live more like the ancient Greeks than we would like to admit. What do I mean? I think sometimes we, we kind of act as if God can't hear us. We act as if he's not around or maybe he's gone on vacation or he's left us or he's departed us as if he's cold and distant and maybe, maybe more of a mystical force. And I think there's evidence that we believe this because of a few things. I think, look at our prayer lives. Look at how weak our prayer lives can be, you know? When everything's kind of going okay in life and like we're happy, we tend to not pray that much. We tend not to seek the Lord. It's a shame. It's a shame that we lose our sense of amazement and our wonder at who God is when we think that our lives are going well. But boy, as soon as we get bad news from a doctor, as soon as we hear of a tragedy, as soon as something bad happens in our lives, all of a sudden, oh yeah, God, hey, I'm back. And I need you now. Sorry, I didn't need you all these other days before. I mean, my life is going pretty well, so I don't really want to know you that much when things are going well. But when things are going bad, I need you. Where are you? Come wait on me. Server, excuse me. And it's true, right? I mean, we do tend to, to live like that. We, we, we tend to neglect to spend one-on-one -on -one time with God. We, we put gathering with the people of God so low on our priority list. When our lives are going well, it's like coming to church is, well, yeah, if we can make it, we'll go. Intellectually, philosophically, we affirm Jesus is God and that he wants to know us. But sometimes, practically speaking, we do not really act like we believe that. We're not in wonder. We're not consistently amazed at who Christ is. Why? Maybe we need to take a closer look at the wonders of Christmas because it is astonishing that the God who created the universe, I mean, the God who speaks and planets are brought into existence. The God who knew you before he created the world and, and he knit you together in your mother's womb. The God who has guided you through your life and through the stages and disappointments and ups and downs who has guided you to where you are today. That God came to earth and he wants to know you. He wants you to know him. That is astonishing that God wants to know us. 
But what's even more astonishing is that we can know him, and here's why. That's the second wonder of Christmas. Not only does God desire to be known, God desires to rescue us. God desires to rescue us. Now, the first thing, so when we say that, the first thing we have to realize is, well, why do we need rescuing, right? I mean, you may think my life seems to be going pretty well right now. I don't know that I need anyone to save me from anything or, or rescue me from anything. Well, if you look at John 1 again in verses 9 through 11, listen to this. The true light, which gives light to everyone. So John is referring to Jesus, not only as the capital W word, but also light, right? He says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. These verses tell us that even though Jesus created the world and everything in it and is the communication of God, and he wants to be known, verse 10 tells us, yet what? The world did not know him. And verse 11 says his own people, the Jewish people, did not receive him. And what does this mean? I mean, did God fail to communicate? Is this a failure on God's part? Maybe he didn't communicate clearly enough? I mean, why did the world now not know him? Well, you see, not only does God desire to be known, he created us with a desire to be known. He created humans in his image. So he created us as relational beings, which means that we desire to be known. We desire to be loved by others. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, instead of being content with knowing God and being known by him and being in a relationship with him, they wanted more than that. God was not enough for them to be happy. They thought they needed more than God to truly be happy. So their rebellion in the Garden of Eden, you know what that did? It brought the curse of sin onto God's good creation. And here's the bad news. We have all inherited this problem. Every single one of us has inherited this sin problem. It's, it's crazy if you think about it, that we were created by God to be in a relationship with him and to find our fulfillment in that relationship. Yet we also now have a predisposition, every single one of us, to find fulfillment in anything and everyone besides God himself. So this means that in our natural state, we're not in a right relationship with God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, that means that our sin separates us from our own creator, the one who created us. Our sin separates us from a holy God. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the price we must pay for that is death. So what can we do? Can we be rescued? Can we rescue ourselves? Well, the answer to that is no, we can't rescue ourselves. And that's what the second thing we have to realize here is that we can't rescue ourselves from this dilemma, this separation from God, because we are inherently sinful. 
It's not just that we do bad things. Okay, you need to, we all need to understand this. It's not just that, oh, I told a lie and maybe now God's mad at me, right? Or, you know, I, I stole some money or whatever. Like, it's not, it's not just that we do bad things. It's that we ourselves in our core are bad, right? And that's something that we all kind of have a hard time admitting and we have a hard time believing. It's that we ourselves, it's not just that we sin, it's that we're sinful. And so, you know, we, we've realized this in our conscience. Our, our conscience kind of speaks to us and, and we realize that we're not okay. And, you know, we try to resolve it. We try to resolve this. We, we try to be moral. We try to be good citizens. We try really hard to get others to perceive us as inherently good, if nothing else, to convince ourselves that we truly are. But all of these attempts at us trying to convince ourselves or convince others that we are inherently good people with good hearts, all of that is the equivalent of us drowning in the middle of the ocean with nothing but a spoon and just trying to take that spoon and scoop out water, scoop it out of the ocean and fling it somewhere else so that we can eventually stand on dry ground. Actually, it's worse than that. It's worse than that. The better illustration is a dead body bringing itself to life again. Because Ephesians chapter two, verse one says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in your own sin. Spiritually speaking, there's literally nothing that we can do to save ourselves to repair this damage that has been done between us and God. There's nothing that we can do. No matter how many times you come to church and listen to a sermon, no matter how many times you pray or read your Bible, there is nothing that you can do to convince God that he should love you because of how good you're trying to be. So what needs to be done? God desires to rescue us. And here's what had to be done. John chapter 1, verse 14 again. The word had to become flesh. Jesus had to become a human. God himself had to come rescue us. Because you see... We studied world religions in our equip class on Wednesday nights this, this semester. And one of the major points of learning about all of these world religions is that basically all of them teach the same thing philosophically, and that is that you can convince whatever higher power you believe in to accept you. If you do all the right things, if you do all the right religious traditions and you participate in the customs and you check off the boxes and you give and you serve and you treat others with kindness and joy and love and all these good things and you basically try to be a really good person, then your deity will accept you and let you into some form of eternal life with him. But Christianity basically turns that whole thing upside down. Christianity says... Actually, no, you can't convince God that you are inherently good. In fact, there was nothing you could do to please the Lord because you were inherently bad. But 
there's really good news. God himself came down to you. Every other religion says that we have to try to get up and work our way up to God. As I once heard a pastor illustrate, think of climbing a mountain. God's at the top of the mountain, and we have to work our way and climb up to him. But Christianity, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that God himself came down the mountain to us. The word became flesh. It is astounding that God himself would also become a human. And we need to really be amazed at that, that Jesus, when he walked on this earth, you know, we were driving home last night from Georgia. We went to see some of my extended family for a couple days for Christmas. And we were driving home, and the moon was just very beautiful. It was a full moon and real pretty in the sky. And I think Christy always gets nervous because I'm just driving, looking at the moon instead of the road. (laughs) But I even had this thought that, you know, that's the same moon that Jesus Christ himself used to stand on earth and look up at. The same moon. Jesus himself used to just stand there and look at that moon, and here I am looking at it too. God himself, who created that moon, came to earth and then looked up at his own creation. He was fully God and he was fully man. The eternal God who's always existed entered into his own creation as a weak and lowly baby born to a family in poverty. And he grew up in poverty and he lived a very lowly life, nothing to write home about. I mean, that alone should leave us with a sense of awe and wonder that almost brings us to our knees in light of who God is yet who he chose to be. Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight, explains this so clearly. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be taken advantage of. But here's what Jesus did for you. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the worst form of torture in the Roman Empire, a cross. Jesus died for your sins. He died in your place as your substitute. You see, you can't talk about Christmas without talking about Easter, really. You can't talk about Christmas without talking about the death and resurrection of Christ because that's why he came to earth. That's why he became flesh. He had to become human to represent us. He had to become what he was dying for or else he couldn't really truly be a true substitute for us. You see, Adam also represented mankind, but he failed. But Jesus came to earth as a human and succeeded where Adam failed. He was the second Adam, if you will. Romans 5, uh, verses 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, that's Adam's fault, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's Christ. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, us, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous, us. That's beautiful. That's amazing. That's something to marvel at. Only a perfect human could stand in the gap between us and a perfect God and be our sacrifice and pay the penalty for our sin. You see, we can't fully understand this. It is a mystery to some degree, right? But this was God's plan all along. And after Adam led us into sin, God made a promise to lead us out. Genesis 3.15, right after Sin entered the world. God already had the plan. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Satan. He's talking to the serpent, the devil himself. He says, and between your offspring and her offspring, he, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus was born so that he could die. And think about this. Because Jesus is fully God, He has the power to enter his own creation and conquer sin and death. But because he is fully human, he identifies with us. He suffered as one of us. He knows firsthand what your pain and suffering is like. That's another astonishing wonder of Christmas. That Jesus came to earth and he identifies with us. He didn't live in a palace. He lived such a lowly, meek, and humble life life so that he could experience the same pain and sufferings that you and I go through. Do you see? This was the only way. God desires to rescue us. That's what had to be done, but here's how we must respond. John 1, verses 12 and 13. John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, our response to this wonderful, amazing good news that the angels proclaimed to the shepherds in that field that night, our response to that gospel message is that we must turn away from ourselves. We just love ourselves too much, more than God himself. We have to deny ourselves and turn away from ourselves and turn to Christ and receive him and believe in him and what he's done for us, what we just described, what had to be done. And when that happens in your heart, another birth happens. It's a spiritual rebirth. You know, the Christmas song that we all love, Heart the Herald Angels Sing, says it very well. There's a verse that says, Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Are you cherishing that truth this Christmas? Are you left in wonder and amazement when you think about what the God of all creation did for you? He came to rescue you. 
See that amazing truth when we really dwell on it? Then, when we're thinking about that and we read the Christmas story, look at this. Luke chapter 2, 15 through 19. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it, what did they do? Wondered at what the shepherds told them. But I love this next verse. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. That needs to be the same reflection and the same attitude we carry with us. Not just this Christmas or the next one, but all year long. Pondering the greatness of God. Pondering the humility of God. We can't underestimate what was actually happening that night in the little town of Bethlehem. The entire world was changing. The eternal redemptive plan of God was unfolding. But the question for us 2,000 years later is, does that still leave you in wonder? Does Jesus fill your heart and mind with amazement truly? As we see the familiar images this Christmas and hear all the songs and the phrases about the birth of Christ this week, I encourage you to really, truly take the time to ponder these things in your heart. If you're here today and you need to speak with someone about this, or maybe you just feel lost and you're not sure where life is taking you, Maybe, you're, maybe you've lost that sense of wonder or amazement. When you look at, not just Christmas, but when you look at God, when you look at Christ and you try to pray, it's almost a struggle. And we all go through seasons like that. So don't feel alone, but come talk to me. Find me after the service, I'll be out in the cafe. If you need to talk, come find me. And I'd love to help you think through that a little better. Maybe ponder those things in your heart. But may we all leave here today a little more amazed, a little more in wonder. And when we come back next week, after we've opened presents, after we've sang Christmas carols and ate lots of good food, may we come back here next Sunday and ponder again but between now and then, let's do some more thinking. Let's stand in amazement. Can we do that, church? Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord God, we thank you. Jesus, the word of God, that you have communicated who God the Father is, his own heart, that he loves us, that he is a righteous and holy God that cannot accept sin. But Jesus, that's exactly why you came to us. Because he couldn't accept us. But Jesus, he could accept you because you lived the perfect life that we could never live, but you did it in our place and you died for us. You paid the penalty of our sin on yourself. You were a righteous, perfect substitute for us, the only one. Jesus, you are truly the only way to the Father. 
No one comes to the Father except through you. So Lord, I pray that we would come to you, that we would turn away from ourselves. Jesus, that we would truly turn to you and that we would see you in wonder and amazement. The God of all creation who desires to be known, who desires to rescue us, who has. Jesus, you have done everything. You've given up everything so that you could love us, so that you could live with us forever. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. May it fill our hearts with joy, hope, and comfort this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.